Today we are uh, embarking on a new sermon series, uh, a series uh, looking at some of the wisdom psalms. And uh, maybe for many of you, uh, the psalms are that somewhat easy place to, to turn to in Scripture, uh, giving you an opportunity to, to maybe read one for your morning devotion, or maybe a couple of them, uh, or different times uh, throughout the day. Uh, the psalms are also uh, rich and wonderful to use as a prayer guide. You know, picking a psalm and, and essentially going verse by verse and praying the words of God back to God. Uh, the psalms are various in their types. Uh, some are psalms of thanksgiving, uh, others psalms of lament. Uh, still others uh, are wisdom psalms, and some are known as uh, what's called imprecatory psalms, uh, which basically ask that God would mete out his full justice upon enemies and evildoers. Uh, the Psalms, I think, are a kind of mosaic in that they highlight every single emotion of our human journey. Uh, Willem van Gameren uh, comments on the Psalms uh, saying this, quote, the Psalms reflect the faith experience of the community of God's people before the coming of Christ. They are expressions of frustration, impatience, anger, and joy reflect the tension between promise and alienation. One of the issues in the Lament Psalms lies in their definition as petition or complaint. They are both. The emphasis on prayer as petition may emphasize submission to the power of God as the psalmist wrestles with God's freedom, God's promises, and his own inability to understand God. In either case, the psalmist cries out in faith for the fullness of redemption, unquote. John Mogabgab, no idea if I'm saying his last name right, uh, also gives a good overview of the Psalms uh, where he says, quote, if the Psalms have been a source of spiritual instruction and consolation for many seekers, they also have filled others with discomfort and bewilderment. There is an untidiness, uh, a turbulence, an undertow of mystery in these ancient prayers, unquote. But despite any uneasiness that the Psalms may give us at times, Mark Futado summarizes the instructions found in all of the Psalms with just three words, our God reigns. So today uh, we begin our look at uh, the wisdom Psalms with Psalm 14, which kind of straddles the fence between a wisdom Psalm and a lament Psalm. There's elements of both uh, found in this Psalm. Um, and then interestingly, Psalm 14 is actually a close parallel uh, to Psalm 53 in, in many respects. Uh, so with that, uh, let us turn to Psalm 14. So go ahead and follow along in your Bibles or follow the words on the screen. This is God's word. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside, together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat at my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. 
You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for your word that you have given to us, the truths that you have revealed in it, and we pray now that your spirit would guide us as we meditate, reflect on this psalm, uh, help us by your spirit to apply the truths in this psalm uh, to our hearts and uh, remind us of the gospel uh, in new ways, Heavenly Father. So in this we pray, amen. Uh, so three main things that we will uh, look, on, look at this morning uh, in regards to this psalm, uh, the first of which is the fool. The fool. Verse one, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Many women of, of past and, and present uh, have pronounced themselves as atheists, having reached the conclusion intellectually that, that God doesn't exist, and um, they come to that place, whether it's because they don't have the proof that they desire of God's existence, or maybe it's because of the presence of suffering in the world. They can't quite reconcile suffering with the existence of God, or maybe some other reason or combination of reasons. Perhaps some of you at one time claimed atheism. However, the psalmist, who is believed to be David, here in Psalm 14, is going beyond a mere uh, intellectual statement or conclusion, um, kind of the classical way that we think of, of atheism. Um, he, he's speaking of something greater and deeper than that. Uh, the fool, as he writes in verse 1 here, is a certain kind of fool, a certain kind of, of atheist, if you will, one who has rejected God. Uh, mocks God, reviles God by the way that uh, he or she lives their lives uh, in perverse and wicked ways. Uh, this fool boldly declares his or her independence from God and God's law, God's commands. Psalm 10.4 uses this phrase to describe the wicked, uh, this kind of fool, where it says there, in the pride of his face or in the pride of his anger, the wicked does not seek him. Uh, I think we're all probably a little bit familiar at least with Joseph Stalin, uh, the man who ruled for nearly 25 years as dictator of the Soviet Union in the 20th century. And it is estimated uh, by historians and such that that Stalin was responsible in one way or another for upwards of 20 million deaths. From famine due to collectivized agriculture that he made happen, uh, due to forced labor camps in the Soviet Union, and due to executions. Uh, at what point Stalin actually went to seminary. Uh, but it's evident from the path of his life and the ruthless role that he had as dictator that he acted as if there was no God, flouting God's law seemingly at, at every turn. And it was his daughter who actually gave an account of Stalin's very last moments as he lay on his deathbed uh, in a biography uh, 
both on Stalin and Adolf Hitler. And Stalin's daughter describes how all of a sudden her father lifted his left hand as if he was pointing to something or someone above him, perhaps God. And his daughter says that this gesture was full of menace and rather incomprehensible. Moments later, Stalin died. And it was immediately after this account that the Stalin and Hitler biographer then writes, quote, like Hitler, Stalin preserved his image of himself intact to the end without retraction or regret. Both men died defying their enemies. And I think ultimately their enemies were none other than God himself. The fool is also corrupt. Uh, and this word corrupt in verse one and seen also in verse three has the meaning of putrid or turning sour as in when milk turns sour. Uh, we've probably all had at least maybe one experience in our lives when we smelled sour milk and you know what a punch in the gut and, and mouth that is. Uh, perhaps there are fewer detestable you know, smells than, than sour milk. But that describes this kind of corruption of the fool. The fool also does abominable deeds. There's a blatant disregard for God and his commands, a disregard for our fellow human beings. And we all have firsthand or secondhand experience of, of moral corruption in our present day, sometimes sadly in our very own city, also things that we, we observe around the world. And of course, history is full of those examples of humanity's wickedness and the ravages that sin brings. But when we think about you know, this kind of atheism, this kind of uh, foolish unbelief, uh, there is a little bit more of a, of a subtle form of, of this atheism, and it is what is sometimes referred to as functional or practical atheism. It's where uh, one professes belief in God, but yet lives as if God doesn't exist or isn't powerful. And so our lives may not be marked by the kind of perversity or wickedness visible to others outside of us, uh, you know, the kind of wickedness that would make the evening news or cause ripples uh, in our neighborhoods. Uh, but there are those more subtle ways that we can live in unbelief, uh, making our way through life uh, and essentially ignoring God and his presence in our lives. And I think maybe just a few of the ways that we do this uh, one of which is we neglect to place ourselves under the authority of God's word. We sometimes pick and choose what sounds good to us from God's word, choosing to believe one thing and, and not another, um, maybe things that, that don't quite make sense to us or sound good to our human ears, we ignore. We neglect to pray. We neglect to bow ourselves before God, to humble ourselves before him to simply praise God throughout the day. We neglect to worship. We at times you know, place corporate worship far down the list of, of things that we carry out in our lives day to day and week to week. We also neglect to rely on God's strength, either not running to him at all or doing so as a last resort, wondering what, if anything, God can do for our situations. 
Sometimes we become enamored with, with messages of the world that are contrary to God's ways, contrary to God's word. And so just a, a few of the things that, that mark this kind of practical atheism, and as we engage in these things, I think we tend to experience a, a dryness of, of soul. Uh, we turn inward and we turn away from loving God and loving others. And sometimes we can be blind to it. Well, we come now to the second main thing from the passage that we will consider, and that is the the Lord's view from heaven. Uh, The psalmist uh, in verse 2 says that the Lord looks down from heaven, surveying the state of mankind to see if there are any that that understand or that act wisely and set their hearts on seeking God. But as the Lord does this, his investigation finds that he sees pervasive corruption among his people, the Israelites, as we see in verse 3. And this calls to mind Genesis 6, where, where there the Lord looked over the state of humanity that he had created and saw nothing but corruption, putridness, the stench of sin and wickedness, and then judged the earth with the flood, sparing only righteous Noah and his family. Friends, sin corrupts, it destroys, it stinks. And then in verse 4, these evildoers that the psalmist describes uh, were living depraved lives uh, within the Israelite community and had no qualms about trampling on the well-being of others to do so, oppressing the poor. And the psalmist compares this kind of behavior uh, to eating or to eating bread where it was just that easy for them to act in such evil ways, as common as it was you know, for you and I to eat. And this reminded me somewhat of a World War II documentary that I had watched uh, once. And uh, one of the episodes in the documentary um, was film showing these Nazi officers having a picnic with their families uh, on a just idyllic spring day uh, in Germany. And uh, you know, it showed them eating food and and just having regular conversation and, and laughing and, and playing with their kids. And this was perhaps uh, mere hours before or after having committed the acts of atrocity against their fellow humans that marked the Nazi regime. It was just that easy or common. Also in the Lord's investigation as he looks down, uh, he sees that there is none who does good. And this, this phrase is repeated in verse 3 uh, from verse 1. And then so we ask the question, what does it mean to be good, right? Uh, the word good is, is a word that we use a ton, and it, it has a, a bit of a range of meaning. It depends on the context. You know, it depends how we're using the word. Um, but I'd say usually when applied to humans in a general kind of way, when we are talking about what does it mean to be good, we're talking about one's moral makeup, uh, one's character, or the balance of one's deeds over a lifetime, and what they merit when it's all said and done, so to speak, in this life. Well, the Apostle Paul quotes from this Psalm 14 in Romans 3, 10 through 12, and Paul writes there, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Paul is certainly driving home some truths there as hard as one possibly can. And so we are called to seek God. We are called to live wisely, to do what God commands us to do, because we are his creatures. We are created in his image. But we find ourselves in a bit of a dilemma when we consider the sledgehammer words of Paul in Romans 3. So there is, there is tension there that we wrestle with. Now we need to remember that God created man not in a sinful state, but God created man perfect. God created man in innocence. And then according to the words of, of Genesis, sin came into the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. And so because of that, none of us seek God in our natural state. Uh, humans are all born to sin, affected in every aspect of our humanity and our ability. We can't help but seek our own glory, and in doing so, we, we push God aside in our rebellion and claim the throne of God for ourselves. Our fundamental problem is, is conformity to God's law and that we are condemned by it because the requirement is nothing less than perfection. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the famed British preacher, uh, said this, quote, the best man, the noblest, the most learned, the most philanthropic, the greatest idealist, the greatest thinker, say what you like, there has never been a man who can stand up to the test of the law. Drop your plumb line, and he is not true to it. So then we consider these words and we ask, okay, where do we turn? What is our hope? Is there hope? Well, in a short one word, one word answer, the answer is yes. And so that brings us to the third main thing this morning. We had the fool, the Lord looks down from heaven and salvation comes from the Lord. Well, as we look around at our culture, at our world, there, there's really no shortage of answers and helps and guides when it comes to salvation, when it comes to right living, when it comes to living well. Go to any bookstore, even a Christian one, if you can still find one, uh, and you'll see a number of titles on the shelves, uh, self-help kind of titles about living your best life now or maximizing your potential. The many philosophies or spiritualities of our day, in the end, all push humans to the very center and either shove God completely aside, or if God is left at all, he's weak and powerless and inconsequential. Or God is simply indifferent, which is the worldview of deism. We hear sayings like, I believe in the goodness of humanity, or the better angels of our nature, or God helps those who help themselves. And so foolish unbelief can manifest itself when we embrace these worldly ways of thinking, these false gospels that teach that we can more or less do it on our own, maybe with a little help from God. So Martin Lloyd-Jones was correct when he said that there has never been a man who passed the test in keeping the law perfectly. And of course, he was speaking about every man and woman who is a creature, but there was one man, the God-man, who kept the law perfectly, and that was Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus never acted foolishly or wisely. Jesus never turned aside and became corrupt 
in even the smallest way. Jesus came, was incarnated, and went to the cross, living a perfect life for us and dying a sacrificial death for us. And so it's in faith that we lay a hold of Jesus to receive the forgiveness of our sins, to receive new life. And God's law reminds us daily how much we do fail to live up to God's perfect standards. So then what do we do? Do we, we try harder or just uh, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps uh, to use another saying? No, we must run to God afresh, seeing Jesus once again, and, and resting in the security of salvation because it is Jesus who has accomplished it. It is Jesus who has finished it. We also see uh, in the closing verses of the psalm, God's presence and power. There's a wonderful promise if you look at verse five that God is with the generation of the righteous. This presence of the Lord with the righteous is starkly contrasted with the first part of the verse that the foolish, the, the unwise, the wicked are gripped with great terror. And the psalmist cries out um, in hope in verse 7 that salvation of Israel would pour forth from Zion, that mountain in Jerusalem where God was most present with his people in holiness and in power, that mountain where the very ark of the covenant resided, God's glory and presence were there. The psalmist also uh, claims and hopes for the restoration of the people's fortunes, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. This promise is littered throughout the Old Testament, and in other places, uh, it probably refers to God's restoration of his people following exile. It could have an aspect of that here in Psalm 14, uh, but John Calvin sees this restoration uh, more as simply God's deliverance of his people from enemies, both outside and from within, and that what would follow would be rejoicing and gladness. And so, brothers and sisters, what does it mean for us that the Lord restores our fortunes? Well, we look around the world and we think of uh, brothers and sisters in the faith who face intense persecution uh, who face threats of, of oppression and, and torture and even death. And, and we remind ourselves that, that God uses persecution uh, to grow his church, to spread the gospel. And then we look at our own country and, and say, well, maybe there isn't that quite extreme of a level of, of persecution, uh, but at the same time, we don't know what the future holds only the Lord does. Perhaps there will come a day, even in our lifetime, when this country may see those kinds of levels of, of persecution, and God will use those as he is using them now around the world. But then we also must consider that persecution uh, can take different forms, and certainly there are certain forms of persecution that we do see in this country that the church does face. And so we think about the enemies of the church today, 
And individually, the persecution or even the oppression at times that we may face. Perhaps some of you now are going through intense attacks uh, from the enemies of God. Well, friends, take comfort and know that we await God's restoration and see it as deliverance from enemies, both from within and outside the church, Satan being the greatest of those enemies. And we trust that God will finally bring to an end, whether in this life or the next, all of our troubles that come from the enemies of God. We see this restoration as we look ahead to when the groaning of all creation shall be no more, as Paul describes in Romans 8. When the Lord shall create a new heavens, a new earth, and we as God's people shall enter a state of blessedness that will last forever, free from sin, free from troubles. Friends, that is a cause for rejoicing. That is a cause for gladness. Our God does truly reign. Let us rest and praise him for that anew. Let's pray.